Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. On this podcast, I chat to authors about the writing process, the social influences of the writing and how literature has the power to change the world. Today, I welcome author Poppy G, author of the novel Bay of Fires. Today, however, we talk about her latest book, Vanishing Falls, a beautifully written and gripping story set in the Tasmanian rainforest in the remote town of Vanishing Falls. Welcome, Poppy. How are you? Very well. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Danny. I'm pinching myself that I'm here <laughs> talking to you. I'm such a fan. Well, thank you. Well, I loved this book. And like I said, just before we were chatting, if I get the chance, I avoid anything about the book before I pick it up. I do the research and stuff afterwards because I like to just immerse myself with my own opinion and not be influenced by anyone else. And um, I just opened this book with no expectations and I loved it. I loved the characters. We'll talk about them shortly. But they, I mean, obviously the story is great, but the characters are what really drew me in. So I'm looking forward to talking about them. Oh, good. I'm just so glad that you like it. Um, I don't assume that anyone will always like it. So it is, um, yeah, I, I do feel... Um, a little thrill every time somebody does tell me that they enjoy it. So thank you very much. And I'm a big fan of crime, so that was part of it too, I think. Now, to yeah. start us off, for people who may not have gotten their hands on this book yet, can you give us an elevator pitch as to what Vanishing Falls is about? Vanishing Falls is a murder mystery and it's set in a fictional town deep in the Tasmanian woman in town disappears from her historic mansion. And her husband comes home and he finds the front door is wide open and the rain blowing in on their antique carpet. He knows that his wife's been home because she's kicked off her shoes and she's left a half glass, a half drunk glass of champagne on the table and her earrings are beside it. But she's nowhere to be seen and the dog is sleeping soundly beside the fire. So he's pretty sure there hasn't been an intruder. So as the 
close-knit town of Vanishing Falls rallies to try to help find what happened to Celia Lilly, tensions heighten and slowly the, the close-knit townsfolk find that all their secrets are being revealed and it turns out that everyone in the village has something to hide. It's a great elevator pitch because it doesn't give too much away. And as I was I was thinking and I read everything at the back and you had a list of your favourite books set in Tasmania, I know that you were from Tasmania as well. Was this important for you for the setting? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, just this year I think there have been four or five um, books released set in Tasmania, including Jane Harper's The Survivors, yep. mm. Kyle Perry's The Bluffs, um, Jock Sarong, The Burning Island, there's several others. So it's funny. It's certainly Tasmania has somehow itself in the writer's imagination. But definitely growing up in Tasmania, I grew up in Launceston, um, I've, I've actually never really thought about writing something set anywhere else because I there's so much scope in Tasmania for every time I sit down to write something I've there's I've just got so many ideas um using that setting and you're right you make a good point in saying there have been um you know I was thinking of Jane Harper's survivors books recently set in Tasmania but I did think it was good that you had a list at the back because I thought hmm that's not you know you you expect sort of stories to be set in Sydney or Melbourne or even Brisbane but it was a good point of difference I thought for me yeah, it's interesting. And some, some of those books I listed at the back are not so well-known and others are very well-known. But Tasmania has a very rich literary history and I think um, there's a lot of writers and artists doing fabulous things there at the moment. It's, it seems to um, attract that type of people. Mm. And there's an essay at the back of your book and it outlines some things about the convict cannibal and the Tasmanian murders. I mean, these must have influenced this story. Yes, The Convict Cannibal is um, a fabulous historical tale that everybody learns about when they're in primary school. Um, Do you want me to tell it for the listeners? Oh, yes, please. (laughs) So Alexander Pierce was a convict who was being held um, at Macquarie Harbour, which is over near Strawn on the west coast, and um, Sarah Island was um, the island there where they... um, housed the prisoners and it was as they had been sent up into the forest to chop uh, wood he escaped with a bunch of men and they were barefoot I think they had a small axe and, and not much else and so they were trying to escape through the remote Tasmanian wilderness um, hoping I think people used to hope they could catch a boat to China or something and uh, they couldn't hunt, they couldn't find anything to food. And so they ended up um, killing whoever fell asleep first. Oh, wow. <laughs> so everyone, no one wanted to fall asleep. And he was caught once and sent back to the um, Macquarie Harbour prison. But he escaped again. And when they caught that time, he actually had a um, human finger in his pocket. Um, and he, when... They hung him in Hobart Town and he uh, said, everyone came to watch. It was like a huge spectacle of the day. And he said that it tasted um, a bit like chicken or pork. <laughs> so, and what yeah. a, a lovely lesson for primary school kids. <laughs> yeah, I think it's that um, growing up in Tasmania, you weren't really taught 
you know, mum didn't tell us be careful of strangers or anything like that. Everyone left their doors open and you didn't lock your car. But it was more what you were taught about was to be aware of the wilderness. So mm-hmm. if you're hiking, don't go off the track. Um, at the beach, none of the beaches have flags. I think there's only two patrol beaches in Tasmania. Right. So be careful when you're swimming. Don't swim near the bull kelp that grows on the rocks because that can drag you under. Be careful of the poisonous um, tiger snakes, all this sort of thing. And so I think that's sort of part of that Tasmanian Gothic legend is, is that, you know, people being lost in, in, the, um, in, the, in the bush. It's, it's a fear that is as relevant, you know, now as, well, probably not quite as relevant as it was back then, but it's certainly something as a child growing up, you were taught to be quite respectful and fearful of the wilderness. As is relevant to your book as well. I mean, we won't give any spoilers away, but I can see that influence in Vanishing Falls. You know, one of my um, favourite teachers from high school disappeared when he was hiking a couple of years ago. And he was a very teacher, beautiful man. And the search was for him and they still haven't found what happened to him, which just shows that that because the the forest the canopy it grows um like horizontally so when the helicopters fly over they can't see down to see where you are if you're lost in the bush that's absolutely terrifying (laughs) yeah it's terrifying (laughs) but i i do like that particularly and you know obviously with the tasmanian setting but with australian setting it is very much the setting is as much a character as the characters because it does have that respect and that threat that the wilderness is going to, you know, do you some damage. I think so. And I feel I, I quite like, as a writer, I quite like like creating that char- the landscape as a character mm. and playing around with that. Um, and I, th- I think like I was thinking about that like one of the first books that I ever read that did that was Thomas Hardy Tess of the D'Urbervilles and he like when Tess is at Talbothay's dairy falling in love with Angel Clare it's all about like they're picking these big fat juicy strawberries and the grass is dewy and damp and it's so beautiful and very fertile imagery and then when she's heartbroken she's sent up to to um Pick, I would like dig um, potatoes out of the ground at a farm called Flintcombe Ash, which <laughs> is as desolate and and horrifying as it sounds. So they're kind of like extreme examples of the landscape as a character or reflecting the character. But it's certainly something that I have a bit of fun with when I'm writing. Now, the thing that struck me about this book was the character voices and the character development and particularly Joelle. I thought they were very compelling characters, but I wondered if she was a difficult character to write. No, not at all. I loved writing Joelle. She um, is, I, 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 it's never specified in the book how she is different to the other people in the village, but everyone in the village knows that Joelle is different and they accept that it's not a problem. But she thinks differently to everyone else and she will, she's someone that you would describe as having little or no filter. But she's very kind-hearted, um, very charming, very uh, popular within the, the town. And so whenever I was writing her, usually when you're writing a character, you start um, writing the character's thinking this or contemplating that. But with her, it was just whatever she thought is what she said. And that was really fun, um, particularly, I think, because in real life, 
you can't ever do that yourself. So it's sometimes it's quite fun to write a character who doesn't worry about holding back. Mm, I imagined it would be a little bit fun because, you know, that having that no filter, um, I said that <laughs> to my friend the other day. I said, imagine, you know, if the technology comes where people can read minds, none of us would have any friends anymore because sometimes you have these thoughts <laughs> that you, you don't actually mean. They're just thoughts that don't mean anything, but they might mean things to other people. Do you know what I mean? Be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> hilarious, terrifying. I don't know which way to go. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know I'd leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. My goodness. Um, but, yeah, I did find that very freeing about that character with the no filter, although I understood, you know, the reactions to her as well. But I thought it was a clever character and a character that was distinct from the other character voices, which is obviously important when you're writing from multiple perspectives. Yes. Well, she was the first character. She was the start of, of the book. Um, I'd read years ago, I'd read about, a an horrific um, trial of of some of a group of people who had committed a, a violent crime, and there was a young girl who had inadvertently been caught up in that, and it wasn't her fault. And she was from she had she was vulnerable. She was from you know a um, unsupportive background, and the, you know they sent the men off to jail, but because she was you know a child practically, um, she sort of vanished and I just always wondered what happened to that young girl you know did she sort of grow up to what sort of life did she have after sort of surviving that incident that event and so my tiny little seed of an idea for this novel was to write her a happy ending and that's why you know she um Joelle comes to find herself living in this gorgeous little cottage along the creek in Vanishing Falls married to a beautiful man with with twins um, but of course, it's a it's a you know a, a, a psychological thriller. So poor Joelle, things had to get a lot worse for her before she could have her happy ending. And it is interesting. It's something that's always fascinated me: um, the impact of childhood trauma and how that impacts people in their adult lives. And it's very interesting because it's very unique to that person, isn't it? I think so. And yeah, I'm not an expert on it. You know, I don't have a degree in psychology. The approach I sort of had was if you, um, so I have a, a um, aunt in who sort of is of a similar um, situation to Joelle and she um, lived a very full life, but she had the benefit, the advantage of a beautiful supportive family. And so that's with Joelle. Joelle didn't have that as she was when she was a child she had a very neglectful mother and uh, eventually she was taken to live with another family who then could provide her with that um that kindness and so I think that's my little um hope whether it's <laughs> reality or not but just you know that you can nurture someone back and you can rebuild someone just with the power of kindness yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, when you say kindness, I like that she actually, she says in a part of the book, you know, there was one small act of kindness that lasted her lifetime. And I think that's true for us all. When someone says something, they probably don't even remember years down the track, but you remember it. So I think it's also really important, not just with Joelle, but just being careful about the things that you say to people or saying nice things. Because sometimes, I mean, you might think, thoughts that are positive but we often don't say them to people would you agree 
Yeah, I know. I know exactly what you mean. It's something I think of too, because if you think sometimes how we um, might speak to our family members, and then you go out and you're so lovely to the bus driver or the stranger who <laughs> happens to be making your coffee. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, sometimes, you know, where. Yeah, they, you can never have too much kindness. <laughs> mm. And I've been trying to do that. Like if I, sometimes I'll just think lots of thoughts and be like, oh, that, you know, her, I like her dress. And I've been trying to vocalise those things. It probably makes me sound like a weirdo when they're strangers. But sometimes it's those, people need those kind words and you don't know how much of a difference um, a kind word can make to someone in a day because you don't know what they're going through. So I really liked it. It was only the tiniest part of the book, but I thought it's so true that those tiny acts can make a bad day better or, you know, make a situation bearable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we all can remember a moment in our lives where someone did something um, mm-hmm. purely kind that really had an impact on you. Um but yeah, I I I think um, I, yeah I think about that a lot, and I think that you know particularly this has been such a rough year for so many people, mm. and often um, like I was talking to my own the um, Quinton, who's the local barista that I like to go to, and when all of we were all in lockdown here in Brisbane, and you know I was thinking some for some people who come to his coffee shop he's the only person that they would speak to that day mm. if they live alone yeah. yeah so yeah no I did I did have that conversation with a few people that said they haven't yeah. seen my family or my friends but geez I've seen my old mate barista <laughs> a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's, it's telling of the times isn't it that's right <laughs> You explore addiction and particularly drug addiction and the impact addiction has on people and others. And I always find it fascinating how we justify our actions to ourselves and those around us, even though we know it's quite self-destructive. It's a part of humanity, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, well, I think I, I think with the addiction, I don't think that, that character, like I see it as a sickness. So I see it as he's not really, um, well, I don't know, like he's not responsible for, he's responsible for his behaviour, but he, it's not the choices he would have made if he was well. And then obviously he's not thinking straight. But then the interesting, um, I find it more interesting, the people around him who, you know, struggling to, um well, you know, like his wife, how does she deal with having a husband who is um, so addicted and almost she's in a little bit of denial, um, but that's something she's trying to work through herself. I think um, it's such a horrible and it sadly affects so many people and I think, you know, anyone listening to the podcast would know of a, of a family or a friend or a friend who's been affected by methamphetamine, sadly, but where it's... Um, it's particularly like it's prevalent everywhere, but it's particularly bad in small towns. I think they're just disproportionately affected by it because, you know, there's more people who, because you know it's a smaller community, so everyone sort of knows each other and um, becomes affected by it in some way. Not just the users, but the families or the victims of the drug-related crime, etc. And as well that, you know, you really explore the struggle of someone knowing their addiction and thinking that they have control of it and then trying to get better but 
you know, never sort of being able to do that, obviously, because it's an addiction and like you said, an illness. And so I think you explored that that struggle really well of, of thinking you have control over something when it's impossible for you to have control over something like that. Yeah, I think I I don't like I've never had a um, methamphetamine addiction, um, nor has anyone close to me, like really close to me. Um, so I'm sort of just going on what I've, um, you know, I, ha- I have a friend who has helped me with with the, um, with that side of the story. But, um, yeah, a lot, so I suppose I'm kind of imagining it as well as using um, some of the research that I did. You also explore status and poverty by not only contrasting them but really exploring the power that status and wealth affords you, as we well know, almost to the point in this book where people with wealth, they have so much power that they become desensitised to other people and they kind of buy people to do whatever they want with it was sad and but sort of reflective of that gap. It's not like there's a gated community here where the wealthy live, and then there's um, the other people living. It's it's sort of side by side. People with um, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different politics, um, are all sort of living and being educated and working together. And so I think where why that becomes quite interesting is as a writer to um, explore the contrast between those two people and the and the um, way that they that that those two um, lifestyles can, can clash yeah absolutely I thought that was really interesting too and like you said how those range of people come together in the one community and it, it adds you know an interesting dynamic but it also it also sort of highlights you know the, the great disparity as we well know between um, you know, poverty and people who who are wealthy. Yes, yeah, and certainly in Tasmania, there are there are you know huge um, chasms between those. I mean, probably not as I don't know. I think it's just noticeable when you've got someone living in like in in my novel, someone living in the historic colonial mansion on land that's inherited and that was granted. You know, often these farming families can trace their land back to those first um, land grants. So that's a, like sort of another interesting complexity of, of that. Um, yeah, and that's kind of what was happening in my novel, that there's a little bit of jealousy there and um, the injustice of it. And, um, yeah, that I, I think the people that own the land don't and that they don't feel that there's anything wrong with it, but not everyone feels that way. Now, I want to ask you, I love crime fiction or psychological thrillers. They're something that, um, you know, I really like because of the pacing and I like the characterization, but I really like the way it reflects, you know, sort of the darker sides of humanity or the extremes of humanity. And I wanted to ask you why you were drawn to these stories or writing them at least. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a funny question because I don't, it's not sort of a question that you ask yourself and then you and then you sit down to write the novel. It's something you would sort of um, be able to to answer in reflection. And I think what I like about it, uh, there's a few things. I love, like there's nothing I love more than a horror movie and I like sitting down to watch um, like a beautiful scene and it's usually a gorgeous house or some children skipping or, or, or singing a nursery rhyme or something. But in this very um, peaceful scene, as the audience member, you know it's about to get 
horrifically disrupted. <laughs> and there's, I think there's some sort of psychology in, um, I've read something about ages ago of, of going to watch a horror movie that you, you brace yourself, you go in knowing that this serenity will be disrupted, but then of course by the end it will be resolved and you'll walk out feeling sort of a sense of relief. I think there's something cathartic in that. But personally as a writer, I just like, I like that to create that for the reader. So you've got the beautiful setting, but, but then it um, becomes disrupted um, by um, whatever it is, like the missing person or the, the violent crime or the, um, the threat that might be coming from somewhere. Um, and what else do I, I, I like? The other thing I like about writing a crime novel I, I, it, they are. There is a bit of a formula to it, um, and I like that challenge of trying to um, put it together. So for me, when I'm writing the characters, the landscape, that's that's the easy bit. The hard bit is the plotting, and I don't plot. I just write as it comes, and then it takes me forever, <laughs> forever and ever to actually go back through and make sure that the plot works. Um, and in this particular novel, one of the one of the um, the not a weapon, but um, something that one of the murderers uses is, is a is a um, cyan like a um, a chemical. And so I made a mistake when I was writing it because obviously I didn't pay enough attention in grade ten chemistry. <laughs> and so I had it, and I was using it in an incorrect way that it couldn't possibly have been used. So I had, that was really annoying because I had to then go back through. And that I didn't realize that until about a week before I had to, um, like they were about to start printing it, and I oh, had to. Wow. It was very stressful. <laughs> <laughs> so I do wish I was a plotter, um, and not just sort of making it up as I go. Um, but yeah, I do. I do like that. It's it is quite satisfying when you've sort of finished the novel and then you have finished trying to make that plot work. Um, Michael Robotham gave me some great advice years ago. He said with his um, standalone thrillers he makes sure that everybody is um everyone's got a motive everyone could be the potential villain and so I kind of I, I use that a little bit that's always in the back of my mind going in to make sure that um and, and I often I don't know who my my villain is until I've, I've finished the novel and then sometimes I might change it rewrite the ending a couple of times depending how I want it to to be that was exactly how I read your novel too. I thought it could be, obviously we all have our suspicions when we're reading it, but, you know, when I put it down before I got to the end and found out, I thought it actually could be anyone. And I really like that about a crime novel that really anyone could have their motive for doing it. And so even though you have your suspicions about who did it, it's still a surprise because there are so many people who could have done it. <laughs> Yeah, oh, that's good. I'm I'm glad that that um caught you by surprise. Yeah, it was funny. I I never um there's one character Brian who I never intended him, and I hope it's not too much of a plot spoiler to say this, but I never intended for him to be the villain. Um, but when the book was being edited, um, HarperCollins edited it over in New York. They commissioned two sensitivity readers, um, so they were looking for um to make sure that it was sensitive um, to, for Indigenous issues and also um, mental health issues and things. Um, but what surprised me, these two separate sensitivity readers both thought that Brian 
was a bit of a baddie <laughs> and they this was in an earlier draft of course and mm-hmm. and so I they thought he was very controlling of Joelle and so I had to sort of I it's just fine else reads it and they their perspective to it and their experience and their background and they see it in a different way to how you intended or just you know even when different friends of mine are reading the novel they all um they might like or dislike different characters which I find interesting for example and loved the character of Cliff. Well, he's not. He's not the most upstanding citizen. He's not that lovable, really. <laughs> no. So that was interesting. My husband, he's a builder. He's not a big reader, so he doesn't read a lot of books. But I thought, I said, why, why do you like him? He said, oh, he was just always busy. He was always doing something. I thought, well, yeah, he was always up to no good. That's right. But what he was doing wasn't always productive. <laughs> yeah that's really interesting and for me I don't have to like the characters they have to just be really interesting and complex for me and that's what I know I quite like you know stories with antagonists um, as the main character which is you know quite popular now with crime fiction but as long as they're interesting and like you said they all have the capacity to do something awful and they're all you know could be the killer I'm in you know so I don't have to love or like the character they just need to be compelling for me and they need to be um you know they need to be I guess part of the the group of people who who could have done it because then you know it's that sort of surprise for you at the end or you think you know well, it could have been this person or that person or that person makes it interesting yeah. I think yeah yeah I agree and I do I like I too like um those antagonists it's a, a couple of my favorite books the um the main character is vile, but you just can't help. You just you can't get enough of them. <laughs> and it is. It's, it's about complexity. And when you're talking about Brian, I mean, he's certainly not vile, but he is complex. But that's how we all are. You know, we're not all good. We're not all bad. We have things that we probably could do better. And maybe some people, we are the villain of some people's story. Isn't that fascinating and terrifying at the same time? Yes. <laughs> yes, it's terrifying. <laughs> Now, Poppy, I, I know that you've been preparing for this question because I saw you write it on social media. So I'm, ex- no, I'm joking. I'm not, I'm not going to put pressure on you saying I'm expecting the best answer ever. But why do you write? I have been preparing for it and I've, I've been racking my brain for interesting answers. And you know what? I, 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 I have no exceptional answer except the truth. Which is <laughs> Which what I, I want, think- really. <laughs> It makes me happy. I like it. Um, writing, I, you know, I've always been grateful for any opportunity I get to write, whether uh, when I was working full time, if it was an hour before work or after work or a little bit of time at lunchtime. And as a mum, I think my biggest achievement was synchronising the sleep times of my my oldest two children so I could write for an hour at lunchtime each day so I think you know I and I think a lot of women would relate to that because you sort of writing on you beg borrow or steal those snatches of time to write and when my kids were little I used to go to the library every Saturday morning and there was nothing more pleasant than just walking into that library and sitting down with your laptop knowing that for the next two hours no one could get to you <laughs> it was blissful so I think um it's when I'm I, I love writing I when I'm sitting there at my, at my desk I I'm happy when I finish I feel good um I think it's like exercise but my husband likes to exercise um <laughs> <laughs> and he that's that's how he functions so he hasn't been to the gym he feels um he doesn't feel normal 
So I think I wish that was my, my <laughs> choice because I would be like the amount of writing I do. If I if I was like into exercising, I would be amazing. <laughs> then we'd never have such a wonderful book as Vanishing Falls. And I've read um, you know three 2021 books so far, and they've all been such a high standard. It's like if this is going to be you know the standard of my 2021 reading, I am very happy. So I read. Um, the Last Thing to Burn by Will Dean, which was just incredible. And then I read Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cosby, which was recommended to me by um, some crime critics. And then Vanishing Falls by yourself. And I'm like, you know, if this is the caliber of what I'm going to read this year, I'm really excited. Oh, well, thank you. And But there are some great books out there, aren't there? I've, I've got such a huge um to be read pile I, and um, I can't wait I, I've been reading now like lately more than ever before but um yeah that um blacktop wasteland I've heard fabulous things about that one too and I really want to read it yeah really really powerful so and I'm glad I love it when someone recommends it to you because there are some books that you may not have picked up you know because you may not have I had to order it in so it's not at my local bookstore or it, oh, it wasn't okay. sent to me because it was an American book and so um, I like it when I either get sent books like Vanishing Falls that maybe I wouldn't have discovered um, or like Blacktop Wasteland when someone recommends it because um, and then you pick it up and you're really surprised. And I think when you read so much, it's hard to be surprised, you know, like I, I love everything that I read, but sometimes, you know, it's hard to be surprised when you read, you know, 80 to 100 books a year. So this year, though, good start. I've been pleasantly surprised by all three books that I've read. So I'm like, that's it. That's set the standard. I'm not reading anything unless it's at that, that, <laughs> that standard this year. Let's see how so I do go. You, do you, if you're like, do you, do you always finish each book? Cause you must be sent so many books. Yeah. Look, I always give like the podcast for me. Um, it was funny because someone said to me the other day, Oh, you know, you do this podcast to sell and promote books. I'm like, actually, I don't, it might seem that way, but it's always been for me a conversation about books and about um, character and about writing and about the world. And if that helps people pick up your book, fantastic. I'm very happy about that. But that's, I guess, never been the purpose of the podcast. It was just to have interesting conversations about books because that's what I really like to do. And I thought, hey, there must be other people who want to hear about this. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so that's interesting. And so my my my, I guess my purpose and motive from the very beginning was to always give as much respect to the book as possible and so that's why I will always read every book that I talk about on the podcast interview um it does sometimes make my life a little bit hard <laughs> yes, <I can> imagine. <laughs> but I don't ever want to ask questions just from the blurb you know I find that's I guess that's disrespectful for everyone, you know, disrespectful to the listeners, to the author, to the book, to all the people who put input into the book. So I like to give the book the respect that it deserves by reading it. And, you know, obviously books resonate with us more than other books, but I think if you're going to sit down and talk to someone, you need to have read the book. So lucky I'm a really fast reader though. <laughs> yes, yeah, that is very lucky. Well, I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I love it. And what I was thinking um, what I love about it is I feel like you must be sitting there with a list of questions, but I feel like all in all your interviews, y you go off road <laughs> every single time. Absolutely. And it, yeah, and I, that's what I love about it because you really engage with each author. So each interview is so different and unique because you're sort of just following the author um, 
and 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 together you're finding out all these different things it's not just a list of questions it's mm. it's um well, quite I'm glad a deep you noticed that because I do have questions because I just need to have them to feel safe <laughs> But I, besides the first question, elevator pitch for people who haven't read the book and why do you write? I really just love to go and have a conversation. And with all this, it's so easy to talk to people like yourself because we all are interested in the same thing and it all comes from sort of the same place. And so a conversation is just really easy to have, you know, and you kind of just forget about forget about the questions and the recording you just have a conversation and I think they're the best they're always the best interviews when I don't tick off any of my questions I love that the most (laughs) yeah I can imagine well it's as a writer it's a gift because it's so lovely you know it's such a solitary um thing writing is so solitary and it's just such a ray of sunshine to have a conversation with someone like you Danny who's read the book and who loves books and um you know, I, I because I follow the podcast, I feel like I know you. <laughs> I'm really good friends. <laughs> but but no, it's true. It's true because I think you just go in deep. Like if you meet someone at a wedding, I've had this conversation before. But if you meet someone at a wedding, you're like, oh, what do you do? And where do you live? And you ask these quite superficial questions. But on the podcast, we don't have time for that because everyone's yes. busy and we've got to record. Yeah. And so you just go, right, so what's the elevator picture? Now, what are your deepest, darkest secrets? Please tell me. So <laughs> I think you build up that relationship very quickly because you go very deep and you talk about life and you talk about feelings and books and it gets personal. And I think that's, I think that's why. Mm, mm, yeah, I think that is why. And and what genre, I know you're writing at the moment, what genre are you writing in? Oh, I'm doing crime, thrilling, psychological thriller. <laughs> so. I thought you, I thought, I, I thought you might. <laughs> It's so funny. Well, it's so funny <laughs> because I, I love I love all genres, right? And I read quite widely, but I love um classics and I love you know Oscar Wilde and I've always loved Shakespeare and Jane Austen and all that kind of stuff. But whenever I sat down to write it, I was just like, it's not being true to myself, if you know what I mean. And I thought, mm. no, nah, you gotta stop writing what you think you want to write and write what you want to write. And it just feels better. So that was a lesson. Yeah, it's a fun, it's it's funny that, isn't it? Um, and and so and you know how you asked me why like why do I write psychological thrillers or murder mysteries? Why 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 what's your answer to that question? Why why do you write that? I always think they're very reflective of the human condition and of society. And I think that was um, reiterated for me when I did um, a four critics from four continents um, live stream and podcast with four crime critics from around the world. And I spoke to uh, Sonia and she's from South Africa. And I said, okay, you know, before we get into your favorite crime books, can you tell me what's unique about the crime novels in your part of the world? And it was very interesting that Sonia said in South Africa, because of the high level of crime in some of the places in where, you know, where she's from, their crime novels are so much about justice and about getting justice and having hope. And then, you know, they told me then about, you know, how crime fiction is reflected in the US and how crime fiction is reflected in London and England and then New Zealand and Australia. And I thought it is so reflective of the societal issues of where people live in the world. And I thought, that's amazing as well as you know exploring what all humans are capable of I mean I I like to think humans are good people most of them but 
the darker side of humanity and what you're capable of if you're pushed to the extreme. So I find those really, really interesting. Yeah, I agree. I, I, it's fascinating. And I think we do, you know, people are good and we tell each other that we're good. But then when people do something good, we're almost surprised. Mm. You know, if people rally for bushfire victims or they rally for flood victims, we it's, it's funny. It's almost, I, I think that's what I find quite intriguing about crime. It's that we try to be good, we want to be good, but then there's that fear that we're not. And I think that's an underlying fear. Yeah, I think so too. And it is fearing not only what other people are capable of, but what you're capable of as well, particularly when, you know, maybe your children are threatened or, you know, your mm. life's threatened, what you are capable of doing. And no one can actually know that part of you unless you're in that situation. So I just find, yeah. I find all of that fascinating. And so I guess I, yeah, I like to explore that through the reading and what I'm attempting to write as well. Look, you're interviewing me now, Poppy. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was not expecting this. I've come unprepared. <laughs> uh, look, thank you so much for your time to chat about this remarkable book. I mean, like I said, my 2021 reading standard has been set and it is so high and I loved your writing style and I thought the plot was so intricate but also very, you know, easy to follow and it was definitely one of those books that, made me keep wanting to turn the pages I just had to finish the book I'm like no nah, no one's disturbing me because I need to get through these books I need to know what happens so you know you've come across a great book when that happens well thank you for those very very kind words you've absolutely made my day and made my year <laughs> by having me on your podcast 